welcome to Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. Here we are exploring subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. With questions or comments about our show, you can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. And I invite you to stick around for the segment of our show we call How We Move with my dear friend, sister, Ambassador Shabazz. She's going to break down the discussion and then share some insights as to what she's been up to lately. She's doing some cool stuff, so you'll want to stick around for that. So it's good to have friends, especially when they love to eat out and always know great restaurants to try. Music business legend John McClain is one such friend. Late one afternoon, I was hanging out with John at Marvin's, the old recording studio of Marvin Gaye that John purchased several years ago. The building was in disrepair. John restored and recreated it into one of the toughest recording studios to book in the city. And I can tell you, it's a shrine to Marvin in there. He is all in that room. John asked if I had ever been to the nearby restaurant, Gwen. I had not, and off we went. Two hours later, back at the studio, we talked about Gwen and one of the best dining experiences I'd had in recent memory. John is on a first-name basis with most well-known chefs in L.A., so it was no surprise when chef and proprietor Curtis Stone made his way to our table at Gwen to warmly greet John. Ever generous, John was attempting to fly Curtis in a jet to Las Vegas for an upcoming fight that John had ringside seats for. A testament to the person that Curtis Stone is, he had to decline and say no thank you. As much as he would have loved to join John, the fight happened to be taking place on his son's 10th birthday, and he just could not miss that. This guy has his priorities in order. John gave my wife and I gift cards to Curtis's other restaurant, the pricey Michelin-starred Maud in Beverly Hills. Like I said, it's nice to have friends, especially generous ones like John McClain. We were treated to one of the most memorable dining experiences ever. Impeccable service, beautifully plated, exquisite dishes. It was truly something that I'll never forget. The next time I saw Curtis was a video of John, once again, John, he's all in this, sent of Curtis and one of his young sons en route to a Laker game. Curtis was talking to his son who had on a Laker jersey and slowly springs on him. They will be sitting courtside. Well, fists go flying into the air and a loud yes from his excited son. Just a great father-son moment. Once again, compliments to our mutual friend, John McClain. Married father of two boys, Curtis is one of the busiest chefs in the country. Countless TV appearances on shows like Master Top Chef, Netflix Iron Chef, and most recently on Fox, Baking Competition, Crime Scene Kitchen. He is a New York Times bestselling author of six cookbooks and owner of Kitchen Solutions, a collection of cookware that is the best-reviewed and top-selling culinary line on the Home Shopping Network. I asked Curtis to share some of his experiences and conversation with me, and despite his busy schedule, as personable as ever, he agreed. Curtis, nice to see you, man. Welcome to Corner Table Talk. Uh, it's so good to see you, Brad. Thanks for having me, mate. It's a real honor. Oh, pleasure, man. So we kick things off, Curtis, with short order questions. I don't have to explain to you what short order means. So tell me, man, what music is in heavy rotation on your playlist? What are you listening to? Oh, dude, I listen to absolutely everything, anything and everything from rock and roll to me. 
your mood is set, then it's so important, right? And I feel like your mood gets set by the music, but then you also play music to fit in with your mood. And in the kitchen, we always play music. Sometimes it's punk rock to get us ready for service. And sometimes it's classical. To, so it's Sunday morning, we're a bit more chilled out and everyone's calm. Etta James is one of my favorite. Oh man, this I could just go on and on. So I know this is short order, so I'll shut up. Do you have a hand in the playlist at the restaurant, in the dining room? You know what? I'm super particular about it. Yeah, I do. And my wife's a music lover too. She's a songwriter and she sings like an angel. So whenever we talk about music, she's a big help in putting the playlist together. She's amazing. Lovely. So tell me, first beverage that you consume in the morning, what's the first thing you drink? I always try and drink a couple of glasses of water before I do anything. I don't know. I heard that somewhere that it was good for you. And it seems to work for me. So yeah, the first thing I do is down a couple of glasses of water and then it's a strong coffee straight up. Any lemon in that water or are you just going straight for the plain stuff? Straight, yeah. All right, so at the other end, how about your go-to cocktail? You know what? I'm a beer and wine drinker, to be honest. I'll have the odd cocktail here and there. And of course, we have bars in our restaurants. And I'm a bit of a girly drinker, though. I probably prefer the spritz to the whiskey sour. And again, a bit like my music. I sound very indifferent, don't I? I do the gronies. Yeah, probably more often a glass of wine. Yeah, I hear you, man. Favorite date spot for you and your wife when you have a rare night off? Where do you go? Where do you take the wife? You know what? We we stay in quite often, my wife and I. If we do go out, we live here on the west side, so we'll either go for sushi. There's a joint around the corner here, the Brentwood Country Mart. We go there sometimes. Yeah, a little bit all over the place. Yeah, I love that Brentwood Country Mart. There's something there for everybody. Just walk around and find whatever you like. So what about your footwear of choice at work? What's on your feet? I wear Birkenstocks, which they're probably the ugliest shoe going around, but they're super comfortable. And when I haven't got them, they're those cork sole um, shoes. And when I haven't got them, for some reason, I get a sore back. But our chefs were on the we're on our feet for long hours a day. So yeah, I know it's, they're not super cool, but they're very comfortable. Comfort first. Yeah. All right. Favorite drive in LA? You know what, man? We recently got this little spot in Agoura Hills, which is from where I live on the west side. You can access it on the PCH. So it's between me and Brentwood. You drive down past Malibu on the PCH, and then you cut up once you get on the other side of Malibu there. And it's a really relaxing drive. Whenever I'm heading over to the ranch, I, I do love that. It takes me maybe five or 10 minutes longer, but I always choose it because it's, uh, I don't know, there's something about seeing the water and just cruising along, thinking about surfing. It's a cool spot. Yeah, that's an iconic drive. All right, how about the first thing you do, man, when you're back home in Australia? What's the first thing that you look to do? Of course, I go and give my mum a big squeeze because she lives over there and she's the first stop. And she's normally got something pretty delicious to eat. I always think about food first, and my mum's always got a fridge full of stuff. She's the first stop. I go and see my dad as well. He's up in the country. He normally puts me to work. I end up cutting wood for him and doing a few odd jobs around the house these days, which I love. And uh, yeah, going to see family, that's for sure the first stop. That sounds perfect, man. All right, let's jump in here, Curtis. How are you and where are you? I'm actually at home right now in LA. I'm sitting in my movie room. There's a little bit of padding on the wall, so I thought the audio might be good. So, yeah, I'm at home. Excellent. And you're doing okay? You look good? I'm doing good, mate. I'm doing good. I've been on this crazy trip. I was in Australia for two weeks, and I went to Hong Kong for a week, and then I went to New York for two days, and then I went to Tampa for a couple of days, and I literally just got home last night. So I've got some 
I'm looking at myself on the camera. I've got some pretty nice bags under my eyes, but I feel good. Yeah, yeah. I didn't notice that. You look good, man. Curtis, as I outlined in the introduction, you are enjoying a pretty sweet ride career-wise. A lot of us, especially young men, can make some questionable decisions early in life. I don't know if that was the case with you, but as a young man growing up in Australia, if someone had said this would be your life, successful award-winning restaurants, beautiful wife, father of two boys, TV fame, life in LA, including a farm in Agora Hills, would you have believed them? Is this the life that you imagined? Oh man, look, I guess as a kid, I grew up wanting to be around food all the time. I love it. And it's my favorite thing in the world to get out of bed and go to work. Yeah, it really is. And I think I've gone on this interesting journey. I started off just cooking in restaurants. I cooked in great restaurants for really tough chefs. And I love that. And then I, I got introduced to the media and then got the opportunity to write a cookbook. And then I got the opportunity to do a TV show. And they're all really different things. You go from a restaurant where, you know, the things are as they are. If something's right, you get told good job. If something's wrong, you get told you messed it up. And then you go to work in Hollywood and it's everything's amazing, but then it's not really true. So I've walked this interesting line of being able to meet different people from around the world, travel, explore cultures, play with food. And I never get sick of it because I'm always doing something new and I feel super lucky. So I read somewhere though, that you said when you were younger, your friends, your mates back in the day used to make fun of you and your chef coat. Did you ever feel any peer pressure that you were taking a road less traveled amongst your crowd or what? Yeah, for sure. You're young when you have to figure out what you're going to do for the rest of your life. I was 18 or 17 and I started cooking and I can remember going and getting that uniform on and it was like gingham pants and a white jacket with a white neckerchief and the big hat, the big tall boy chip hat. And I looked at myself in the mirror and I started laughing and I thought, no, I'm going to wear this for the rest of my life. And thank God that uniform has evolved slightly, but it's still not the coolest in the world. But yeah, I would, I was playing Aussie rules football at the time too. So I'd go down to the, go to footy practice, still running out of work in my chef uniform. And my mates would literally laugh at me and be like, dude, what are you doing? And it was back before cooking was cool. Yeah. I guess it's become cool over the last decade or so, or maybe a bit more, a couple of decades, but I just like, so I didn't really care what people thought of me. I was just like, I love it and I'm into it. So I'm going to do it. Yeah. And who's laughing now? <laughs> um, so for those of our listening audience unfamiliar with your career path, you began cooking at the Savoy Hotel's five-star restaurant in your hometown of Melbourne, Australia at the age of 18. You moved to Europe when you were 21 to further your education and classical training under renowned chef Marco Pierre White for eight years, a foundation that would inform your subsequent career in Los Angeles. Is that about accurate? Exactly. Yep. Okay, That's cool. exactly what I so I read somewhere that you were not that impressed with LA's food scene when you first moved to Los Angeles. And I'm curious about that, but before we get into it, tell me about your first impressions of Los Angeles. And I know you're a fan of the Mamas and the Papas original version of California Dream. And I love that song and I can't hear enough of it. And you look cut out for LA, man. You look like you could be a surfer. So did the real thing match the dream of whatever you had imagined California life would be like? I think I, when you watch it on TV and that, that was my only frame of reference and you think of it through the eyes of Malibu and this surfy kind of culture and city, and that's all very exciting. And then the glitz and glamour of Hollywood. And you just imagine it as a little city. And then when you get here, it's this giant sprawling joint. It's like one massive suburb. That's a pretty interesting place, LA. And I think it took me a while to find my way. Like when I first got here, I was I actually 
the production company I was working for rented me an apartment in Pasadena. And I thought that was the center of town. So I kept walking around Pasadena thinking, where is everything? And then <laughs> I figured out theater was a bit out of the way. And then I'd go into Hollywood and I'd get to Hollywood and I'd be like, this doesn't feel right either. Like Hollywood's sort of this weird joint, yeah. dependent on where you land. You get a taxi to Coanga and you get out and you walk around and you're like, where am I? <laughs> Right. And then you go down to Malibu and there's nothing really down there. And until you figure LA out, it's a strange city to visit. But in the same way, it's a strange city to visit. It's an incredible city to live in because when you live here, you find your tribe and you're like, you know what? I go here for that and I do this on weekends and you really find your groove with it. It took me a minute, but yeah, no, I love this city. Yeah, man. And you can't beat the climates that you have access to from the beach to the mountains to the desert. Does Australia lay out like that or different? It doesn't. It really doesn't. If you drive a few hours from Melbourne, it's exactly the same climate as what you left. But here, I can get my tomatoes grown down in San Diego and they're unbelievable. And then in Tehachapi, a couple of hours in a different direction, I'm getting carrots out of the high desert where there's a frost on the ground. The same time of year, my tomatoes are unbelievable. And even Living in LA, it's a very desert-focused climate when you think about it. It can be hot during the day and chilly at night. It's awesome. And it's always sunny. You can grow anything here. It's a gardener's dream. The only problem with being a gardener here is you go away for two weeks and you come back and plants are everywhere because everything just grows so fast. It's really cool. Yeah, no, I'm sure you must enjoy that as a chef too. What year did you move here? And how would you describe what was happening in the culinary world? And tell me a little bit about what you thought was missing, Curtis, and what you thought you could bring to it. So what year did you move to Los Angeles? So I've been here 14 years. So I guess I landed in 2009. But when I first came here to LA, I felt like there was good restaurants. Like this farm to table thing was being done everywhere. And there was people doing that really well. And it was simple. To me, it's a bit more like shopping than it is cooking because you've got such great ingredients. You go down to a great farmer's market like in Santa Monica or even the one in Hollywood and you procure these beautiful ingredients. So then sure, the ingredients are so good. What's the point in trying to improve them? You just treat them really simply. And I think there was good examples of people doing that. There wasn't the level of gastronomy that I'd lived in London for 10 years. And I think there you can go out and you can eat in these incredible restaurants in the same way you can in New York or Chicago that have these sort of really high-end restaurants and LA didn't really seem to have that. So I, was, I thought it's a decent city to eat in, but it's not incredible. I think I've since learned there's a lot more, if you really want to dig deep, you can find good food here, but it's, it's in Monterey Park or it's in East LA, you can go and get unbelievable Mexican food. So there's good food here. There's good different cultures celebrated in that very simple hole in the wall or street food way. But when I got here, I was like, LA needs a good fine dining restaurant. You know, there's one or two, but it was slim pickings. Yeah. I'm glad that Michelin and other reviewers started to expand. Jonathan Gold was really like the one who broke down the neighborhood barriers, if you will, and made finding a great taco as important as finding a five-star meal. And obviously they're two very different experiences, but if you love tacos, you'd like to know where good ones are. Yep, absolutely. He did so much for this city. And I think it goes to show the spirit of LA. There's something about Los Angeles, which is a bit different than its perception because we think of it through the lens of Hollywood. But I think once you're here in LA, you, you realize that people do celebrate those little stalls that you're talking about. You can go and eat off the street really well in LA and you can't do that in a lot of big cities. Sure. You can in some, but not in all of them. And 
that sort of ethnic celebration that cultures that are celebrated here through their food is awesome. Yeah. So I'm going to relate a couple of my personal experiences, Curtis, and then come back to you with a question. So when I moved to LA, I'm originally from New York City. I moved to Los Angeles in 89. And I really felt that the nightlife scene was lacking, maybe much like you felt the restaurant scene was lacking when you moved here. And I felt if we just brought some New York energy and a little New York City swerve, we do really well. Fortunately, I connected with some local LA movers and some really good business partners. And they helped me to connect to the local culture before we opened. Right. We found a great location. Much like you, I was trying to find my way. Where is the center of this town? I was staying in Marina del Rey. I would visit Venice Beach. That wasn't it. I just had a hard time finding the center. Anyway, we found a great location on Sunset Boulevard, right near the Marlboro Man and Chateau Marmont, and connected with Los Angeles legend, Lori Rodkin, who designed the place for us. It was Roxbury. So we opened up with kind of a, a Hotel California vibe with a New York City brand of sophistication, and it took off. It worked great. In 2008, I teamed up with the BLT State Group out of New York City, and we took over Le Dome, which was a landmark restaurant on Sunset. The BLT group felt their formula was plug and play. And I knew Laurent Torrendel's food was outstanding. However, I was concerned the cookie cutter aesthetic would not hold up to the forward thinking design that was happening in LA at the time. And soon after we opened, Boa opened right down the street on Sunset, a much more physically dynamic design space just a mile away and BLT slowly faded. So I bring those two examples up because reading a new market takes a certain eye, the things that you have to consider just because you're from somewhere else doesn't mean that all of a sudden Angelinas are going to flock to you, right? You've got to tap into the local vibe. And you open your first place, the Michelin star Maud in 2014, followed by a very different concept for Gwen in 2016 in a much different part of town. Maud, Beverly Hills, Gwen in Hollywood, and Hollywood is a bit of a toss up at times. So I'm really curious what factors you considered when you thought about location, cuisine, course, style of service, and vibe for these two very different concepts. What a great question. That's the secret sauce in our business, isn't it? Like quite often you open a restaurant and then you look out the window and you see somebody. I'll never forget I worked in London on Dean Street and somebody opened this restaurant on Dean Street on the other side of the street to us, but maybe a block in the other direction. And they said, oh, this place is going to be amazing. And I said, no, they've opened it on the wrong side of the street. And it can be so simple that, but I was there. I walked those streets every day for 10 years. So you really get to understand people's walking patterns, where people want to be, where the cool bars are and all of that kind of stuff. So I think that location is just so important. And when I first got to LA, I lived in Hollywood. Once I got out of Pasadena and I was up in the hills there in Hollywood and I really felt it was a bit underserviced in terms of a good restaurant, good places to go and hang out and get a drink go out late night but nowhere really to go and eat great food so i was tossing up on hollywood but then what i wanted to do with maud was this like incredible little restaurant 24 seats i knew that i needed to be somewhat within striking distance of the people that a had the money and b wanted that sort of type of experience so i was like i guess it's beverly hills because there was a lot of business around there and a lot of folks that have big old homes down there so i thought Maybe that's the spot. That's what I ended up doing with Maud and opening in it there. But for me, that's just one part of food. Like I also wanted to open a great restaurant in Hollywood. And I think when I first did it, 
all of my buddies and then people that knew me from LA were like, mate, you're out of your mind. You're too deep in Hollywood. It's never going to work. It's no one's going to come. And we did struggle for a little while. We opened and we were, every one of our guests that was a regular at Maud would come to Gwen at Hollywood and they'd drive and the second they'd walk through the door, you could just see it. They'd been in the car for an hour and they were like, oh, the traffic was trying to get this side of the 405. And you're like, yeah, it's going to be a real challenge to keep that customer. And the truth is we didn't keep that customer. We had to establish a whole new customer base. And we're a butcher shop as well as a restaurant. So we had to go on this journey with the neighborhood and try and get them engaged and understand that, yeah, we're charging more than some of the other local restaurants, but it's a whole lot better and it's a really great experience. And we still wanted to keep fun because we were in Hollywood, so we play the music pretty loud and we dim the lights more than we would if we were in a different part of town. And I think all of that stuff play, you've got to think about your guests. What are they doing before they come to you? What are they doing after they come to you? How do you make sure that you're a part of their evening and serve them as best you can? And that's what we've done. And look, that, I'm not going to lie to you. There's been moments through Gwen's history that we're like, have we just got it wrong? Do we have to throw our hands in the air? We planted four million bucks on that corner in Hollywood and it was every dollar of it was ours. Me and my brother, there was moments that you're looking at each other and you're like, I know you've risked your house to do this and so have I and we've just, we've got no option. We're going to figure it out. And that's being in the trenches with each other and you just keep trying new things. And we've done everything from serve sandwiches out of the butcher's shop to during the pandemic, we turned the whole thing into a big grocery store and we had, you could come and buy whatever you needed, toilet roll, bottle of vodka, great steak. We've never been too proud, but to go on that journey with a restaurant, it really becomes like one of your kids. It's one of your little babies. Here we are six years on, we're still battling, but it's, it's good fun. Yeah, man. I can relate, Curtis, so much to what you just said. I've sat through nights where I wondered if I did a place called Manemsha in Venice yeah. back in 2003, right after, after the World Trade Center issue and the economy was terrible. Great concept, New England seafood. Manemsha is a little fishing village in Martha's Vineyard. We really nailed it and it just didn't work, man. And a year later, we pumped a lot of money and I was going into my personal bank account to pay payroll for the last few payrolls. And I could not eat in the restaurant because my stomach hurt so bad worrying about what it was happening. So I can relate to you and your brother looking at the investment that you made in that corner in Hollywood. You got to figure out a way to make it work. When you look at a space, Curtis, do you have a certain feeling when you go into a building? Because Maude and Gwen obviously are two very different spaces, but both of them are really cool, man. They're really neat. I love what you did with the interior. But to me, space is the first thing I feel when I walk into and just feel four walls and a ceiling, something talks to me. Do you feel that when you walk into an empty space before you do your thing? I sure do. That feeling that you get in your gut is everything. It's like when you meet a new person for the first time, you either get a good feeling from that person or you don't. And it's the same for me with the space. I walk in and I'm like, and I think it's that, that combination of how the light hits and how it smells and how big the space is. Does it feel intimate? How big's the ceiling? Are there any little details? And Gwen, that's a beautiful old building. It was built in 1926 and it was a mercantile for a while. And there's something to the history of that. For a hundred years or however long, you've had people walking in and out of there and wondering what happened before you. And I think that's pretty cool. The restaurant I worked at in London, Coivadas, Karl Marx used to live upstairs and they had a corner, you know, the corner tables where Winston Churchill used to dine and 
there's something about, and that was also built in 1926. So I remember when I walked into Gwen and the real estate agent said, yeah, the building was built in 26. And I was like, oh, now I'm going to buy this place. <laughs> it sort of was something superstitious about it for me. Yeah. So I'm curious, how have you felt the city of Los Angeles is to do business in as a city in terms of getting permits and licensing and all of that? As, as I know things have eased up a little bit. They've tried to make the process a little more streamlined, but What's it like for you? Do you feel like the city has learned how to cooperate better with would-be business owners? Look, I think LA's still got a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of that red tape that is hard to cut through. That's the truth. It's not an easy city to do business in. I wish it was because I love this city. But And you're right, it's probably loosened up a little bit, but then things have also gotten slower in other ways. Getting a permit right now is a disaster because the city's just, it's backed up and it's not as efficient as it needs to be. And we've also got this strangely litigious attitude that's crept in and you can't drive a mile down any street in LA without seeing a bunch of billboards for accident and injury lawyers and employment lawyers. And I look at them and I'm like, how do they afford those billboards? I can't afford a billboard. I've got a restaurant that <laughs> doesn't turn over a ton of money, but what, why are we all suing each other? It doesn't make sense. And I wish it was, I wish it was a little cleaner and a little more decent in the way we did business, to be honest, but it is what it is, man. It's, I'm not saying LA is worse than any other city. It's just uh, things aren't easy to, uh, to get done. Yeah. And in fairness to LA, and I guess the case could be made in terms of the traffic too, it's a place people want to be. So there's right. such demand on all of the systems and all of the structures from the highway to the city offices. It's it's just a place where a lot of people want to be. And that's, it's trying to grow with the demand. It's tough sometimes. It sure is. And yeah, you know, the, the, the traffic's never bothered me because I'm always driving home at midnight after the restaurant. So I don't know what everyone's talking about with that traffic. <laughs> Lucky you. So let's fast forward. And I know you, you alluded to some of the changes or adjustments that you made during COVID. Some of the things, Curtis, that came up and got a lot of airplay during COVID were already in the pipeline for us. Labor shortages, issues around pay, the cost of labor, rising prices, shrinking margins, all that stuff. We've been talking about that for years. It's been exacerbated, of course, by the pandemic. Here's something that you said, and I'll get you to comment on the other side. You said, quote, the entire industry got pretty rocked during the pandemic. What most of us tried to do was take care of our teams and keep them employed. It really became a time of reinvention. So if you would talk about that reinvention and what would you say was the biggest takeaway business-wise from the experience? And are there any changes to your businesses based on what you learned or adjusted to during COVID? Yeah, for sure. Look, it was one of those times that you could either just sit back and be like, this has happened. It's a problem. And we're just going to have to sit and weather the storm and wait until it's passed. And in a way, that was one of the things you felt very helpless, right? Like you run a business and I always say about the restaurant industry, it's relatively high volume, high revenue, but very small margins, which makes it a very risky business. That's why everyone tells you don't invest in a restaurant. If you have a restaurant that's turning over a hundred grand a week, and then all of a sudden there's a lockdown that says you can't open, what do you do? You weren't making you might have been making five or 10% if you're a really good operator. So what happens to that 90 to $95,000 of expenses? And most of that is your labor. So I think most people's attitude was, I think we're just going to have to lay a bunch of people off. And we weren't different. When we first pulled everyone into Gwen and we said, look, this has happened. We're going to get you all back in as soon as we can, but we just don't know. So for the meantime, we're going to write you all a check. 
and keep in touch with us and blah, 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 blah. So we passed out these checks in the restaurant and I got a text message that day from one of the ladies that worked there and she said, I'm a single mum. I've got no way of feeding my family. I need a job. I'll come and clean the house. Just can you give me something? And I called my brother and I said, I think we have to get them all back in. We have to figure something different out because if people need to work. We can't turn our back on them. So we did. and we. But then you're like, what do we do? And that's where we decided we'd open a pie shop and we'd open a grocery store in the restaurant and we'd just rally around and just keep ourselves busy. To be honest, it would have been easier to get home and sit and wait it out. But we, we decided not to. And I think as a result, we ended up with a team that were just super tight with each other. We looked after each other and yeah, we worked through COVID. We worked through COVID when there wasn't a vaccine. We're in a kitchen together and everyone's telling you to social distance and you're like, yeah, we're doing the best we can, but ultimately we're still cooking. Like we're still in and out of the same refrigerators. And so when one of us would get sick, we'd all rally around that person and we were doing home deliveries. I remember one day I knocked on a door as I was dropping off a pie for somebody in Santa Monica. A guy I know opened the door and now I'm standing there with a pie in my chef wife. He said, what are you doing? And I was like, mate, it's on my way home. I said, we're all in it where it doesn't matter who you are in our business. We're all doing every single job right now. And we, I think we got a tighter team because of it. And I think some of that stuff stuck around. We opened a pie, we called it the pie room at Maud that we did that for, for six months and everyone loved those pies. As a result, we ended up getting a commercial bakery on Pico and we're about to open a pie shop in Topanga and we've started this big bakery. I think you, you could hang on to some good stuff that did happen during that pandemic and we're just lucky we got through it. You know, that's the truth. We hope it's finished. We're still thinking, is it totally over? A big part for restaurants is people started working from home. And if you're not going to the office, you're not going out for dinner with your work colleagues. And it's still challenging in our business, but we're still in it and we're proud of that. So we hope it keeps improving. What an honorable thing to do. I'm not going to mention by name, but there was a hotel in LA that immediately laid off its entire staff. And the story of the woman coming to you asking if she can find anything to do had to be everyone's reality in that position, man. And just really honorable. That was important to you. And the risk that you took with two young boys at home, I had a person we sold our old restaurant to Post and Beam. He had a, a seven-year-old son who was having a heart ailment. And so he's in and out of the restaurant. This kid needs special care. And just an unbelievably risky time for everyone. And coming out on the other end here, I think we're all a little bit changed from that experience, man. I've read a lot about the mentality that you have in the kitchen in terms of training and how you're trying to do something wonderful. And that's a quote from you. And how important a person's attitude is. You'll take someone with the right attitude over someone who has great skill, but a shitty attitude. Talk about that yeah. a little bit, Curtis. As hard as good skilled people are to find, you'd rather work with someone who you connect with, vibe with, and you feel really wants to be there. I would. Like at the end of the day, what we do isn't rocket science. Yeah, once you build a ton of technique and you have a great creative idea and you also have a good palate that you can back up the technique, the ideas, and also make sure it tastes incredible, it can be quite complicated. But at the end of the day, a lot of the little jobs we do, like chopping and dicing and sauteing, they're skills that you can teach someone pretty simply. As long as that person has a willingness to learn, it's not impossible to teach them. So yeah, someone might come from these brilliant restaurants and 
I always look at someone's resume and if they've jumped around, if they've been at a different restaurant every year for the last eight years, I'm like, I don't want to employ someone for 12 months. I'm looking to them to come and be a part of the team and part of the family and stick around for a while. So I always feel like the attitude's everything. We hire a bunch of guys from Chrysalis, which is an incredible organization here in LA. And they, they basically help people get back into the workforce. They could have fallen out of the workforce for whatever reason. Maybe they fell on hard times and ended up homeless or they, there's a lot of guys that were incarcerated and in jail. And when you come out of jail and you're trying to get a job and you're trying to change your life from what it once was, not many people want to hire a jailbird. So it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. And you get out of jail, you've got no money, you've got no way of getting a job. So what do you do? You end up in that same cycle. And we hired our first guy probably eight or nine years ago from Chrysalis. And he'd been in and out of jail his whole life. And he's been with us for nine years. He's back of house supervisor. He's got the keys to both my restaurants. He's, as far as I can concern, Daryl's one of the most trustworthy guys in our business. And I share my secrets with him and he shares his with mine, his with me, and I feel very safe with him. And we've gone on to hire about 20 of those guys and like mixing people from different backgrounds. And once you learn these guys' story, you're so moved to help them and to do the right thing by them and to create that safe environment that has a little bit of structure around it. You can nurture them and take care of them and watch them develop something that's not just a paycheck, not just a job. And it can be quite simple. Like I remember giving one of my guys a t-shirt that had the little Gwen logo on it and he put it on and he looked real happy with himself. And then he came back and he said to me, this is the first time in my whole life that I ever got a uniform and I feel like I really belong. And it was a 12 buck t-shirt. And you think to yourself, dang, you can't overlook the simple stuff and you've got to try and open your mind to, to make it possible for all sorts of people. And that's what we do. And I think the team really appreciate it. I love that, man. I so love that. I had a young guy come up to me five or six years ago and said, man, Brad, come out in the parking lot. He was working for me as an expert. I started as a busser, took me over to a car. He said, this car I bought because of my job here. And the same kind of feeling, Curtis, just different right, ways, cool. but you feel like you're really doing something. What we do is not rocket science, as you said, but we care. We take care of people and we also create these families of teams that we nurture. And uh, I just love, love, love that story. I want to read to you to Kristen Kish, the co-producer of the Netflix version of Iron Chef, had to say about you, quote, he is an incredible teacher. He can teach anybody anything without that person feeling intimidated. It's a skill and an art for personality to be able to do that. Being able to watch him in the kitchen stadium, I knew he could cook, but he can really cook anything and lean into any theme seamlessly and tell a full story. He is probably one of the most versatile and knowledgeable chefs I've ever seen. That's pretty high praise. And yeah, man, it's so cool. And you've said you prefer to not be thought of as a celebrity chef, that you wanted to be counted among the stars in the kitchen, the folks that really earn it by the work that they put in. And nobody would dispute the fact that you've put in the work. It's not a well-kept secret that your physical appearance, six foot four, built like an athlete, um, is it's a part of your appeal. And that's fine, man. You're allowed that. That's you were born. You can't take credit for it. You were born that way. But you're a really nice guy and you're really personable and charming. But I wonder if any part of your drive to be as exceptional as you are in the kitchen was motivated by your desire to not be seen as some TV invention. I'm here because I earned this. Is that, was that any part of that part of your motivation? 
Yeah, probably was. I think early on in my career, I was just a cook in a great restaurant. I was very lucky to work for a guy who drove us super hard. I worked for Marco Pierre White. He was the youngest guy in the world to win three Michelin stars. And it was one of those super intense, crazy kitchens where everyone's yelling at each other and you just keep your head down and do the best you can. And I stuck with it. I worked for him for eight years and that was, I went from the guy in the corner that was peeling the potatoes and sweeping the floor to the head chef. I loved it that I could do that and it felt a bit like playing a sport. I felt like I was going to work every day and the training was super intense. But then I got these opportunities in TV and stuff and I came over to America and I think I felt pretty secure in myself that I was like, oh, I know how to cook. So it doesn't bother me what people really think. But I don't know if that's a hundred percent true. Do you know what I think? Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, when people do look at you as that pretty boy or that guy who just got lucky and he's on TV all the time or whatever, I was like, no, I want, I want to show him. I want to prove something. Also to myself, right? Because I'd taken a decent little time out of the kitchen, out of the restaurant kitchen. That was probably seven or eight years that I didn't cook in a restaurant. I think too, when you have kids, you get a bit more retrospective and you, you wonder what your kids are going to think of you and you wonder how they're going to be how their mates are going to talk to them about you in their playground. And you're kind of like, yeah, no, I want to be the real deal for my kids. I want them to see where hard work, what hard work gets. Yeah, man. I hear you. Changing the subject here. We're winding down and I have a couple more questions for you, but Top Chef took some heat, pardon the pun, in 2020 when there was a lot of focus on the issue around diversity, mm. in particular for African-Americans because of the absence of black judges. And under a bit of the spotlight, they brought in several black chefs as judges, which was overdue and certainly welcome. I can tell you firsthand as a second generation African-American restaurateur with a pretty visible 30 plus year career in hospitality and award-winning restaurants under my belt, I felt completely passed over by opportunities in TV. And I'll speak for myself and those that have had similar experiences as I have. We would be appreciative for those on the inside and who have a voice and a presence to speak up and ask for a little bit more inclusion. And I'm wondering if you think that's a fair question to ask. Absolutely. You know what? It's of course, it's a fair question to ask. You shouldn't even have to ask it, to be perfectly honest. It should just happen, right? It should just happen automatically. And I think we all need heroes. And you usually see your hero as someone that's a bit like you, right? And my wife's, you know, her mom's from Korea and she's an actor and she was one of the first sort of Southeast Asian faces on TV in some ways in America. And a lot of young girls come up to her still and they're like, oh my God, you were the face that I saw on. Beverly Hills 90210 or whatever the show was. And, and that gave me the feeling of maybe I could do it. And I think about that a lot. I think about all the Aboriginal kids that I got to know back in Australia and the Aboriginal kids that I knew, they wanted to be Aussie Rules footballers because there were some really good uh, Aboriginal Aussie Rules footballers. And it made me think if there's not good, if there's not a lot of faces that look like yours in politics and in law and in business and whatever else, then maybe you don't see yourself that way. And I think we quite often talk about our industry as having this challenge around it. It's hard to hire female chefs. It's hard to hire African-American chefs because there's just not as many people interested in it, which I'm like, yeah, and that's why we need to promote it. And that's why we need to give them opportunity far beyond what might seem reasonable because we want them to be the heroes so everyone else can look up to them and we can actually bring real diversity into our kitchens by the way 
that's how you learn as a cook. You learn from people with different experiences to you. You learn with people from different customs and cultures to you. So the best kitchens are really mixed kitchens. And yeah, I think that you're, you're absolutely on the money. We need not only letting people into your kitchens in junior roles, you need them in senior roles too. Yeah. Amplify that, Curtis, because your voice is loud and people listen to you. I appreciate that point of view. I love Los Angeles. It was my home for 30 years. It has become a tale of two cities to some degree, astronomical wealth and heartbreaking poverty, irrespective of some of the bad behavior that came to light as a result of the two movement. Most of us in hospitality are in it because we enjoy taking care of others. There's no shortage of important and in some cases, highly disturbing issues confronting the country, the world and the planet. You're a father of two young boys, and I'm wondering what concerns you the most about where we are in the near term and where we're headed. What's on your mind? What are you worried about for your sons? What are you optimistic about, pessimistic about? What are you thinking? Yeah, look, that division of income and wealth is, dude, it's a real challenge. It's something that we tried to take on in our restaurant business too, because in our business, as you know so well, you have cooks and people that work in the back of house that don't get paid much money, maybe minimum wage or something close to minimum wage. And then you have a front of house team who probably do a little bit better because they get tipped. And then you try to balance that out in your mind and you're like, why does that role deserve twice as much as that role? And so you try and figure out a way to solve that. And you're like, what if we take the tip? What if we take that as a service charge and then we divide it more evenly? And some people have a problem with that. Some people think it's a good idea, you know, and it's, it's controversial, whatever you do. I think we've always given all of our team health insurance and people say, oh, that's wonderful. And I'm like, it shouldn't be wonderful. It should be normal. Of course, you should give your team health insurance. And of course, you should fight for a good minimum wage for them. And I think one of the first things a restaurateur says is, oh, the minimum wage is going up. This is a terrible thing for our business. And I'm like, it's a brilliant thing for our business. You want the minimum wage to be higher so you don't have to fight to give your people more money. It, they should just get it. You know? and, and like I told you about my work with Chrysalis, you're dealing with people that have come from a really challenged background. And if you've got kids growing up in a society who aren't going to school and aren't getting the same opportunities as some other kids that live on the other side of the railway line, then it's garbage. You know, it doesn't, it's, so we've got to fight. We've got to fight for that equality. And we, we've got to think about it, whether you own a business or whether you work in a business, you've got to think about your fellow man and try to make it as equal as you can. And that's a hard part. I'm extremely fortunate in my situation and we've done well for ourselves as a family. And I still want my kids to grow up with their feet on the ground. I don't want them to grow up in a neighborhood that's all their buddies have got parents that have private planes and because you're right, the division of income and wealth here is really extreme. And I think it's why my boys play club basketball, because I get to meet kids from different areas and different neighborhoods. And yeah, I'm in the car more often on the weekends, driving them here and there. But I think that stuff's super important. And I think it's a challenge. It's a real challenge, but it's one that we've got to, we've got to fight to overcome. Yeah, I feel you, man. And I love what you say. Getting into the, to the really hard questions here. Steph Curry or LeBron, greatest player in the game today? Oh, man. After Steph's little uh, outing last night, I don't know what I can say to that. But dang. Ooh, that's tough. I, I love the way Steph plays the game. He's just so smooth and he can just hit those threes from anywhere. But I'm a Lakers fan and watching LeBron on the court, 
he's just such a bully and I love it. I love him for it. Like he just controls that team and he keeps everyone honest and he's coaching from the sidelines and he's just all over it. And then he stands up and he does what he has to do too. I love him. I've got to give it to LeBron. Yeah, I'm with you. This will broadcast a couple of weeks from now. We're talking about the game that Steph Curry had last night, game seven against Sacramento, where he scored 50. So just for reference. All right. Pound for pound, best boxer. Who are you going with? I don't think he can go past. You mean that's fighting now or of all time? Fighting now. Sorry. Yeah. I think fighting now, it's got to be Canelo. I know he's getting a little bit older. But he's just dominated his division and then he's gone on and done great things out of his division. He's such a he's such a classy fighter. The way he moves his head, he's so hard to hit. I watched the fight. I'm a big boxing foul. I could talk about boxing forever. But yeah, no, look, I no, I won't sidetrack myself. I think Canelo. Okay. Yeah, I'm <laughs> I tell you, I'm looking I love Errol Spence Jr. and I'm looking forward to that Terrence Crawford, Errol Spence Jr. Both undefeated. That's gonna be a battle. That's going to be incredible. Yeah, I don't know. I think my money's on Crawford, to be honest. He's another, like, he's another unbelievable talent. And so's Spence. It's crazy. Do you think John can get us some seats, man? Would you ask John McClain next time you see him for some seats? <laughs> I don't think you'll ever give me a ticket to the fights again after I turn it down. <laughs> Curtis Stone, man. What a pleasure to talk to you, man. It was great seeing you in LA a few weeks ago. And I look forward to seeing you the next time I stop in one of the restaurants. You're a real gentleman and a pleasure to talk to you, man. Thank you. You too, mate. This was a real honor and big fan of what you've done over the years in the restaurant space. Thanks very much. Thanks, Curtis. Welcome back, everyone. We are joined by my sister, my dear friend, the lovely Ambassador Shabazz. What's going on, Ambassador? How you doing? I'm bent over, fatigued. You've been busy. <laughs> yeah. My heart and my spirit is always joyously bouncy, but age is catching up and I need more of that turmeric. Yeah. In my system. Hence, you know, it's that kind of fatigue that brings the smile. Because for me, it's not what I've done is watching the beneficiaries feel exalted. Yeah, yeah. A little less bounce to the ounce, but still very yeah, effective. Yes. <laughs> I want to come back to your latest endeavors because you've been doing some really cool stuff. But let's talk about Curtis Stone. Oh, my God. Yeah. Tell me your impressions of uh, Mr. Stone. In the world, in the TV land, we as an audience think we know people, right? And I have to say, he always reigned or resonated authentic. But listening to the conversation between the two of you affirmed all of that. I want more than just food with him now. I would love to fireside chat or hang out with, spend time, collaborate. He's such a genuine human being where food may be the result that we associate him to, but it's the journey that he, it's the road he takes. It's the thoughts that he has. It's the outcomes he's yearning more than just a good palate. I really dug listening to the two of you talk about life, the industry, but all the sentimentality around it was really great. Oh, thank you. I had to listen back to my own words in my head as I was saying them, but I wanted to get your impression here because to ask if talking about inclusion is a fair conversation. I feel a little like meek making a request like that, that it should be more of a demand. But yet, of course, I'm going to show respect for our guest. He's not here to be put on the spot necessarily. And I certainly, 
I thought his answer was very thoughtful and smart, but I wanted to get your take on how we should be making the demands, the requests. We're talking about inclusion. We're not talking about dominance here. We're asking for inclusion, which seems a very modest ask. Yet even in my ask, I feel like I'm Please. <laughs> Imposing. No, I think it's topical. It's essential. We can't make it a fad or a trend just because we are away from 2020 or 2021 or we hear about some headline news that reigns with or presents the inequities. I think it's a real conversation we should have often, and it should show up in all aspects of how we coexist in this world, period. So I don't think there's any apology or timidity to ask that question. And what's really wonderful about a person like him is he was in accordance with you. He was right there. Shouldn't we have balance? That should be a no-brainer. Right. Should I be, should we be more forceful in our demand for inclusion? I don't think force is essential because then that's always misconstrued, especially when it's coming from a black person. But I think the continuity of making sure that is always in the forefront of conversations or structures that we put together, we want to be, not everybody does though, right? Not everybody, equity does not work for everyone. There's some people that prefer the vertical. The vertical is their preference. And then there are those of us who um, enjoy the circumference of union, of people working together with different capacities and strengths, working, sharing that currency together. No, I don't think that it's a question that should not be asked, but I wouldn't say it's forceful to mm -hmm. ask. I okay. think it's real. Okay. The only thing that makes it forceful is when you're speaking to a person who you think is trying to do -si do away from it. And you got to get a little more aggressive. If they're in accordance with you, it's a real conversation. Yeah. So I want to segue over to what you're doing, but through this lane of Curtis brought up this idea, and I really liked this. I thought he was right on point with this. The idea that to create role models is so important. He talked about the lack of black chefs because finally now we're seeing the rise and prominence of guys like Kwame Nwachi and certainly Marcus Samuelson and some of the other folks that we know. Mashama Bailey. So finally, some of these folks are rising to regular national prominence, not just the cycle one year and then you right. don't hear from them for another five. And so role model was something that he recognized as being very important. But to segue over to what you're doing, when I think about some of the students whose lives you're touching, why don't you talk about that a little bit so the audience knows what I'm referencing? I'm so warmed by what I see as the way that you inspire these young people? I'm inspired by them. I have the vantage point of being an older person so I can forecast the work that it takes to get something done successfully. The challenge is having to convince those along the way when they've not had the benefit of seeing positive outcomes or winning situations. But in enlisting my own faith, and experience to assure it. And we just had some experiences in Newark with the public high schools, two of them of which I'm the provost, Newark School for Global Studies, where we had our blue coat ceremony, and Malcolm X Shabazz STEAM Academy, where we have been renovating for the last year, an area that was dungeness at one point, and just breathing life into it with some national muralists, young muralists, 
and adding curricula to that. And then we just had a senior, our first annual senior appreciation ceremony in that space the other day. It's the International Day of Light, and it's also the week of my dad's birthday. And so we decided every year we're going to make sure these seniors, for those who don't make it across, because that happens, they don't make it to graduation. I wanted to make sure every student, every senior in that school had a feeling of what it is to be part of an alma mater. And it was just my heart. I'm in love. I have a crush on it. So share, if you will, just a few of the highlights. And what was your overall takeaway from what you think the day left folks with? And what did it leave you with? First of all, young people believed us. We did have in the murals, we had four different family heirs. We had descendant of Garvey. We had the descendants of Muhammad Ali, descendant of Yuri Kochiyama, and descendant of Madam C.J. Walker. And as each of them gave words about their respective elder, it was always giving back and sharing and extending. Jacob Ali, who's the grandson, brilliant grandson of Muhammad Ali, said that while these persons within the murals are um, our direct ancestors in terms of us, that everyone in the room is an heir to them. I wasn't surprised by that generosity and that caring and that sharing and that encircling of who we are collectively as a people. When you talk about equity earlier or fairness, that should be the norm. And I don't ever debate the one who is not in Congress. I am clear and revealed by the one who's not in Congress with that. And it enables me to just step aside, trim the fat and move forward, but still set an example in case they want to jump on later. But I don't worry about that. And these kids, I have to fly back in a couple of weeks because I can't imagine not spending more time with them. My time, my contract was concluded this June, but it's moved to another two years. And I'm ecstatic because we can really dive in and make some work. This is the same body of students that we've taken on national trips and delegations and global ones, getting them their passports so that they're global citizens, making sure that they're part of the aspects of life where they're at the table has been very, very rewarding. And let me say this. I'm not pulling any arms. These students are eloquent. They're clear. They're just never given the opportunity. And I'm beaming. So the takeaway is just they are exactly who we anticipate them being if we give them an opportunity. That's so special. The work that you're doing there is really frontline work. We, as older folks, we have a different look at the world. We're in a different place in our lives and maybe not you, because I know you try to keep a little bit of your equilibrium by not overindulging. There's a lot of negative stuff going on in the world. I'll say that. What do you find if there's a common denominator amongst the young people that you're inspiring? Challenge? What's their biggest challenge and where do you think the biggest need is? I don't think a lot of kids know who they'll be in a year. They don't have the forecast. Like when we were younger, with dreams, aspirations, some of that has been daunted by the crises, young people being killed in schools, all the risks, the headlines. I don't think we think about the news being on and how it impacts a young person. The conversations adults have around young people today, the belligerence that is displayed without resolve. I think young people 
live as sponges to that and feel very often futile. That's what I find collectively, no matter what the circumstances, whether it's in a private school or an urban school or with or without in terms of resources, they don't know where they fit in the world that's arguing all the time. Wow. And when the adult in the room, the proverbial room, be it Washington, D.C., or the stations that are broadcasting news, when they're arguing voices and dissent and disagreements, and we can't seem to agree on today being Thursday. That, as you're talking, I'm thinking about how young people do absorb without necessarily commenting or even turning in our direction when they're absorbing, but they are taking it in and the impact that all of this discord must have on them. And especially those that are even as challenged as some of the kids that you're dealing with. Yes. When you think about 11th graders right now, we're monitoring some 11th graders. They were in the eighth grade when the pandemic, and then they had no conclusion of that year, no fellowship with their classmates, goodbyes to teachers. And then they entered into a new school, high school, for two years with no real brethrenship. It was just all virtual. And so now they're like a drift and we're just saying, no, we're here. That's why I said some of the fatigue of just walking through it no matter what. And that's what I get to sit back and feel really healthy and good about the last week, that it worked, that if you really do put some effort towards it and have faith in young people and the restoration or the resilience of human beings, the regeneration of good spirit, then we can get some smiles and some hugs and some We've talked to these kids about coming back. When I went to high school, I'm sure it was the same for you, where we were counting down in that senior year. I'm out. You won't see me anymore. Ten, nine. What you doing? Out. And then all of a sudden, I found myself back at my high school, being very fully engaged at the UN school. And so I talked to them about that, that union, that family, look around the room, that these are your people, in a sense. So what do you do now? And after June, after you cross that, line into your post-existence at the high school, come back. And that we're there with you, for you. We're not saying goodbye after June. So, such an important link and message to, to deliver. Ambassador Shabazz, we are going to have some fun news coming up soon. We're not ready to share <laughs> some of the stuff you're up to, which is a little lighter, but... <laughs> No smaller an endeavor, but I'm not going to give it away. We'll talk about it in the coming weeks, but I'm really excited for where you are, what you're doing, how you spend your time. We all know that you don't stop. You're an inspiration and I just love the way that you move. So that's why we call the show. How we move. <laughs> but I, I look, first of all, no matter what position I'm in, because I'm leaning this way with a little ache and a pain to spend the time with you is also key because how we grew up together and what we're, how, the ways in which we sync is also part of the fuel and the resonance and the affirmation I need to be in like company, to be with family with whom there is no judgment and you can just fall in and share your goodness, have goodness, exchange goodness. I look forward to doing on a table talk and how we move. I do too. 
Ambassador Shabazz, how we move. So great to see you and can't wait to see you in person. Okay. Speak soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.